valuations that might start to be fair, you might have yep. to think about is crypto actually worth anything? Like you have to take off these rose colored glasses and just look at the world for the first time. Get off your Wally uh, trolley. It's a Wally trolley? I, I, <laughs> sorry. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. What it is, Brosif? You know, we're just going to take a moment here, check in on my boy Dougals, growth investor over there. This can be tough times for someone like you. You doing okay? Do I need to send you a gift basket? What's happening? I'll take gift basket anytime. You know, we like okay. free stuff. We just talked about that. I yeah, want yeah. some I want some startup shirts in there. I want some uh, joggers in there. This is my some gift basket and a couple bananas. So if you can send that gift basket my way, I'm good. I'm a good. picture of me to put on the wall behind you. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, please do. Please do. This is, it is a tough time for the portfolio, to be frank. But we talk about this all the time, man. They got a long time time horizon in front of us. I'm feeling, I mean, it's probably more positive than it should. I would not feel good if I were getting uh, closer and closer to retirement, right? Or something. Yeah. But it's so fascinating right now because so many things are unprecedented. Like the number of economic macro factors that we have that are like um, happening at the same time is fascinating. And I got a long time horizon. So I'm just looking at stuff dropping, being like opportunity, opportunity. You know, that's all I'm or question mark, opportunity, question mark, right? Question mark. Yeah. Watching some things. Um, so I think it's interesting. But the portfolio is definitely heart. Like H-R-T. No vowels. <laughs> heart. You know, um, do you have anything in your portfolio that's like completely, uh, I'll call it counter cyclical, but like, if the S&P is down three or 4%, like it was a couple of days this week, that is almost always up. Uh, no, I've got nothing like that. I have, I have nothing that is, I'll call it explicitly like hedge worthy kind of like there, there's nothing that, that really sticks out there like that. You got something? There's a psychological experiment. So long ago before bonds were in the greatest bubble of our lifetime, that was long-term U.S. treasuries for me. And if you flipped open the portfolio, you'd always see big gains there when everything else was falling. As we've talked about on the show, I moved on from that because it doesn't make sense in the current environment. But I still am enacting a little bit of the portfolio insurance uh, thought experiment that we talked about. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you, just psychologically, there's something about that. It doesn't have to be a decent amount of money for me. But like, it just helps, you know, to, to flip open your brokerage account and see nothing but red somehow has a different feeling than if you see nothing but red and something way something way green you know even though at the end of the day in terms of gross dollars that might not be super meaningful the psychological aspect of that has been fun you should try something like that i, I want to get your take on if it feels better for you even if it doesn't really change uh, your gross performance there are enough things in the portfolio that's still like on a, I call it daily, not that I'm looking at it right now daily, but that'll show positive when other things are showing negative, but it's not because they're counter cyclical. It just like happened to happen just happens, at yeah. that point. And I can say that uh, 
psychologically, it is really helpful. And so I can imagine if there was something that was definitively positive and other things were negative, it would feel even better. Like I, I can, I can get that. That's it's, it is an interesting thought experiment there. Cause I could see that it's nice to see green and it kind of, when you see the two together, it reminds me of Christmas. There we go. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> okay. Before we hop in, let's drop a couple notes. Please rate and review. It's very helpful. Uh, click that rate. Leave us a review. Helpful for people to find us. And we're pumping that listener mail more so than we used to. Where do they find us? Skippydougals at gmail.com is the easiest place. Hit us up. Guys, we're going to uh, do something crazy today. Uh, I'm going to twist Dougal's arm and hopefully get we, we get the mailbag jingle. Uh, and we have some really good listener mail that we're going to do at the very end of the show. So if you're interested in debt levels and why I'm so concerned about debt as a value investor and some other good stuff, uh, we're going to dive into some of that at the end of the show. All right. So listener mail at the end. Heard it here first. And you will hear it here last as well. <laughs> okay. You cool if I dip into the fishbowl first? Let's go. There's this Atlantic piece that I enjoyed called The End of the Millennial Lifestyle Subsidy. This is from my boy, Derek Thompson. Absolutely my boy. Almost everything he writes is pure gold. And uh, I don't know what award he's going to win for this article, Deagles, but he's winning something. This was great. Yeah. The, the Skippy Award. Hey, how come we don't have that already? How about we should, how we can we don't have some, like the skippy doodles? Yeah, we should do that. And it's then, a, like end of the year, we could come back and like give all the the awards out. Maybe do like a half year and a full year, something like that. Yeah, what we should do is we should give a dollar gift card to Chipotle, just so you don't have enough to buy a full burrito, and it's really annoying. How much was that <laughs> gift card? Seven dollars. It's a joke. Let's move on. Back to <laughs> no, Derek Thompson. I, the, the idea of like the useless gift card is it is really kind of fascinating. I think I might I might start doing this for you for some kind of gifts. Like the the absolutely to the penny useless gift card. All right, let's yeah. get into the article. So the idea here behind this article is that there's been this period of time where a lot of the companies like let's just call them the gig. Economy, economy companies like the Ubers of the world have been subsidizing so heavily from VC money, venture capital money into their business that they haven't even wanted to make a profit. And so what that's done is that it's it's artificially made prices for their services so low. And Derek Thompson here is calling this the millennial subsidy. So here's a quote. For the past decade, people like me, youngish, urbanish, professionalish, Got a sweetheart deal from Uber, the Uber to X clones, and that whole mosaic of urban amenities and travel, delivery, food, and retail that vaguely pretended to be tech companies. Almost each time you or I ordered a pizza or hailed a taxi, the company behind that app lost money. In effect, these startups backed by venture capital were paying us, the consumers, to buy their products. I think that is like really succinct, well-written well-written piece there. So I summarized it a little bit earlier, but yeah, that's the point. It's like these companies have been losing money pretty much intentionally and they've been subsidizing that lifestyle. So that is the subsidy that's being talked about. And what he's saying now is that subsidy is ending. It's gold. And what is so great about this is not only the way it articulates it, but the fact that the timing of this is so bad. So the venture capital money was all about user growth effectively. 
and not about making a profit. They wanted to hook those users. They wanted to get people used to using Uber for years and years and years. And then either you slowly turn the dial to start making profit, or maybe the economy and the stock market turns and you're not quite as free flowing with that funding as you used to be. And so you have to turn that dial. I think there's a combination of both those things happening here. So he talks about the Uber ride that he's taken for years and years that has been between 10 and 20 bucks, kind of, it's kind of implied. And all of a sudden it's 50 bucks, but he doesn't have a great alternative to Uber or Lyft right now because they've spent so much money dominating the space. The quote in this article that I think wins them an award is, if you woke up on a Casper mattress, worked out on a Peloton, Ubered to a WeWork, opened a DoorDash for lunch, took a lift home and ordered dinner on Postmates, you interacted with seven to eight unprofitable companies and collect that collectively lost about $15 billion. It's over. Love that. Love that quote. You nailed it, man. And, and life is about to change. Life is about to change for a thousand reasons, but also because these companies can't, they're not comfortable losing $15 billion anymore. No, well, investors aren't comfortable with them losing $15 billion anymore. This <laughs> is the more accurate statement. They never should have been comfortable. But then think about all the ramifications of this. What, what's the time that your Uber fare goes from 20 bucks to 50 bucks? It's when inflation for all the other goods are actually up 9%. So this is the worst possible time for the consumer who, if you became d- dependent on services like this. Yeah, yes. And it seemingly like intellectually, when you go to that hindsight situation, you could see, okay, I should have known that this was coming, right? As a consumer, but it does kind of hit you out of nowhere at the same time. And it's happening because of what you're stating, right? Interest rates going up, oil prices going up, all this stuff kind of feeds into the environment changing, investors not being cool with it, the environment changing. You know what this reminds me of? It's maybe this, you can say this is loosely analogous, but it still reminds me of it. So I used to be a consultant with McKinsey and company, right? Back in the day. And when you're in the consulting lifestyle, the firm pays for a bunch of stuff. Yep. Like you hop in that taxi, paid for. You go out to that dinner, paid for. You do some things maybe that shouldn't be paid for, paid for. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, there's kind of a subsidized lifestyle and you get used to this. Like when you start yep. there, it feels kind of ridiculous, but you get used to it. And I remember when I left McKinsey, and I went out to that dinner, like that place that I'd eaten so many times. I went out and ate at, and then I went, what? <laughs> like, I remember I was- there I have to the, pay for this myself? Yeah, yeah. I went, <laughs> and, and I didn't go back. Like, cause I, cause I, it seems like, again, hindsight, like it's obvious that I have to pay for that, but I'd like never actually seen the price tag kind of because of that subsidy. So it's loosely analogous, but it made me think about this because of the uh, potential consumer behavior change that could come from it. As I mentioned, went out to that place to eat, didn't go back again, right? Yep. And so it makes me like, I've seen with, with um, Uber Lyft for a number of reasons, um, there was a pre and post, maybe not, I shouldn't say post pandemic, a pre pandemic and during pandemic, I don't know, change like now, whatever world we're in right now, there was a change for a number of reasons. But one of them is that the price has gone up for me personally. I mean, like the price has gone up. And so like, I think not twice, I think like six times before I hop in like an Uber or Lyft. Like I'm, you know, I'm a walker anyway. I might just yeah. walk. I might grab a scooch, right? Whatever it might be. So consumer behavior changes. Exactly. And I, I'm 
gonna hop on a bike more. I mean, it. This is about to change no, I'm not uh, about to consumer that. behavior. I'm not, not, I, no. <laughs> Let's not get ridiculous. <laughs> so he ends this article by saying, "But the heavily discounted uh, prices of the 2010s aren't coming back. The millennial consumer subsidy is over, and for the foreseeable future." Metro residents will have to go about living the old-fashioned way by paying what things actually cost. This kind of sucks. <laughs> I'm sad. I'm sad. Why do I have to pay? Like, why do I have to pay what things actually cost? That doesn't seem <laughs> fair to me. It is. The re- I love that. I'm glad you brought up that quote. I really love it because there's so much of our current environment that kind of just feels that way. Like, we've been living in a fake world for a while. And so... It's like boohoo, tiny violin. You have to pay what the thing actually costs. Is <laughs> like a we're we're hitting that. Like you have, you have to look at valuations that might start to be fair. You know what I mean? Yeah. You might have yep. to think about is crypto actually worth anything? Like it's just you you have to take off these rose colored glasses and just look at the world for the first time. Get off your Wally uh, trolley. It's a Wally trolley. I, I, yeah, sorry. <laughs> You seen the movie Wally? I mean, like Pixar? maybe. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I remember it boring, boring. Right? Okay. You, oh, oh, oh. Okay. You just, you just, you just, you just pierced my heart. But <laughs> so in the movie Wally, the humans of the future are riding around in these. Oh, the like, Wally trolleys. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so there you go. That is not what they were called. <laughs> they are now. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So you got to take off your rose-colored glasses and actually look at the world. You know, for the first time in a while. Boo to the who to the so boo to the who to. I thought this is a really, as you mentioned, really well written, um, easy to understand, digestible, and is such a thought provoking piece. Yeah, and this is classic Derek Thompson. He he puts these puzzle pieces together in a way that's really unique. Well done. We'll put it out on the Twitter for you, which is at Skippy Dougals. Let's shift gears if you don't mind. Bill Gurley is back giving wise advice and i just want to get your take on one thing we don't have to spend much time on it he did a thread this week he's been kind of on this soapbox a little bit around uh people in the valley that didn't live through 2001 and 2009 and just trying to explain his perspective of how challenging things might get uh the quote that jumped off the page for me is there's no doubt that layoffs are brutal and real lives are negatively impacting but not adjusting as a losing strategy for everyone. This is in the context of saying how difficult he thinks it's going to get. And that if you're at an early stage company and you have concerns about cash flows, burn rates, um, get ahead of it now. And if you have to lay people off almost the sooner, the better, because if you wait six more months and then you have to do it, the economy is probably worse, which means, the people that you laid off have a harder time getting a job and um, you just burned all that money paying those folks. And, and so your run rate is reduced because you delayed making this decision. Any thoughts? I lots of thoughts. I mean, as always, Bill Gurley spits wisdom. Um, I think that in, within this quote here, the not adjusting is the most important phrase to me. Like, even if you abstract it out of layoff specifically, I think it's, it's the, understanding the current macro environment and your own current like business situation is important and then adjust accordingly because different different companies will have different 
industry postures or yeah. di different postures right now, right? So there are some organizations that like if you take a Peloton, which we talked about before, they were, you know, hot, hot, hot demand. People couldn't leave their basements. And so you're exercising there. The posture changes aggressively where like growth is now not a thing, right? Like growth is no longer a thing. There are other businesses where growth might still be a thing. Like even real growth might still be a thing, but maybe it's not as much as you oh. thought it was going to be or, right? And so, so it's not, there, there are some companies where you just like, you need to cut because like your, your revenue future incoming like has gone down. And there are some organizations where you might like, you might just need to adjust. And so the layoff piece specifically, I think that depends on organizations, but the adjustment piece, I think is so critical. It's just important to step back and think strategically about where your company is, what the macro environment is, what you're going to do. Wisdom. Love is wisdom. Yeah. And so let's talk about an adjustment that's happening in the marketplace. Uh, Klarna, which is a Swedish payments firm, buy now, pay later. One of the early pioneers in the space, I'd say, founded in 2012, if I remember correctly. No, 2005. 2005, really? Yeah. They've been around for... It, it's an OG in the buy now, pay later space. Uh, yeah. that's I don't know point. if they've been doing that from the beginning, but they were founded in 2005. Okay. Um, so they had raised money towards the end of last year at a valuation of $46 billion. And you know what they're trying to raise money at now, Dougals? Spit it. 15. I, I mentioned that not because I care particularly about Klarna, but because in the fintech space and in a lot of the early stage hot companies, I think it's very reasonable to say your valuation today might be somewhere around a third of what you thought your valuation was six-ish months ago. It's craziness. Yeah. But you see that everywhere. I mean, we've seen a bunch of high flyers go down 75% that are publicly listed companies. At 45 to 15 is aggressive, but you are, you're absolutely right. And that's where we've, and Bill Gurley's tweeted about this too before, when we've talked about the looking at 75, 85% like by itself in a vacuum objectively sounds really, really harsh. Like it sounds like a discount. It sounds like I'm at the blue light special, right? At the stock yeah. market. But when you picture that that same thing went up 3X, 4X, 5X in a short period of time, you're really not going back like all that far, right? Like, like I'm going to get the numbers wrong. Maybe you have them in front of you. But for Klarna, Klarna raised money, I think twice last year. And in January, raised at something like a third of the amount that they'd raised like in June. Right? It was something like that. Like it was, a, yeah. it was, a, it was a, such a change. And when you look at that, you go, oh, okay, so what the business was last January, which might've also been overinflated, is like what we're looking at. Like that doesn't seem... <laughs> very true drastic. very true yeah i just to be crystal clear because we talk about it a lot i'm not saying that just because something went down 75 percent means it's fairly valued or undervalued in a lot of cases it's still overvalued which is insane uh it's hard for the human psyche to get comfortable with that because you go well no it used to be 46 billion 15 billion has to be a steal unfortunately that's not true and you know, I've I've had a special place in my heart historically for Nvidia. It's come up a whole bunch on here. And I, you know, like in early 2000 or something like that, like oh, Nvidia might be overvalued. Stock goes up like 50% that year, doubles more than doubles the next year, right? Yeah. And then I was just uh, the reason I brought this up because this week I was looking at it because Nvidia has been hit pretty hard with the rest of the tech stuff. And I was like, oh, maybe 
maybe it's at a price that you know that would be interesting. It's looking at Nvidia, and it's at its price of like June of last year. And I went, I okay, so it's it's now at the price that's double the price when I thought it was overvalued. <laughs> like like yeah. that is a like the, it, this kind of stuff happens all the time. So slash does not mean on sale. Yeah, let's cut the thing in half like two more times, and then we'll we'll talk. Yeah, um, maybe. Yeah. 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 craziness all right so, what's in your fishbowl we talked about crypto a little bit just mentioned the words a little bit earlier today and we've discussed crypto a good amount on this here podcast this week i, I mean it's beyond this week obviously but this week so much has come out in the crypto world because bitcoin which is what i'm calling it now when it's uh, when it starts to drop a lot it becomes bitcoin bitcoin <laughs> is getting hit so hard that it started getting to Michael Saylor style margin call type prices. Not saying that's going to happen. Who knows if that happens? But it's so interesting. I, I just have now I've got things to talk about because it's not actually about it as an investment. It's about its pop culture bubble pop. Yeah, I'll I'll drop a couple things. Then I want to get your reaction. So let's go back four months. We're all sitting around eating corn chips, eating popcorn, ordering pizza. Football, Super Bowl time. What filled the screen? Fortune favors the brave, Dougals. Exactly, exactly. So do losses. Matt Damon, investor of water and crypto, maybe, came onto the screen. I don't know if he actually invested in crypto, but he was in the ad. And he came onto the screen and was talking about how you gotta, you got to look at new frontiers. you got to be brave, right? Because fortune favors the brave. Lots of commercials going on during the Super Bowl uh, during that. So that's interesting. More interesting here and also kind of messed up. And there's one quote that I think summarizes really well. So Coinbase, the cryptocurrency wallet slash, slash uh, exchange, bought NBA, an NBA Finals ad. NBA Finals just ended. Let's just be clear. Yeah. So this is very recently. They bought this fi- NBA Finals ad. And what the ad does, did you watch it, by the way? Have you seen the ad? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So what the ad does is it pulls up a series of tweets going back over the last decade of people saying crypto is dead. So different tweets saying crypto is dead from like last year, from 17, from 15, from 12. And then it ends with long live crypto. This ad comes out. You could not. Neil Stevenson, the author of Snow Crash, couldn't write better, something better than this. The next Dia, the next day, Coinbase has to lay off 1,100 people. How are you going to spend probably upwards close to a million dollars? I don't know how much it costs, but a heck of a lot of money to get that commercial to say how, like, basically how thriving things are before you do that. I'm worried my rant from last week is going to get me in trouble, so I'll try not to rant about Coinbase. But (laughs) let's just say it's a bad look when your founder buys a $133 million home and then just, you know, goes out and explains why he has to lay off 18% of his workforce. So uh, they, they grew too fast, blah, blah, blah. I didn't even spend time reading it because I knew I was going to be disgusted by it. But so in a way, he's getting ahead of it. He's taking Bill Gurley's advice and that's probably going to be positive for Coinbase. And I know uh, leading a company is a very, very difficult thing. You have to make decisions like this, but man, to have the, to be a jerk about it, even I don't think he's trying to be a jerk about it, but to 
kind of have your actions be so disconnected from, oh, I really care about my employees, but I have my $133 million mansion. I mean, how many, how many employees could he pay for years if he didn't have a hundred million dollar match, there's just yeah something we talked about it before. It feels um, dirty. Yeah, it doesn't. It feels dirty. I have an icky feeling when it relates to Coinbase. I also don't think, and I could be wrong on this, that he's taking most of his pay in crypto. I think he's actually taking his pay in dollars. So what does that tell you? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But here, here's here's the quote. Here's the quote. And as a little bit of context for this, in addition to the ad that we just mentioned, Coinbase has also recently rescinded offers. So they like gave job offers to people and then they pulled them back. Um, That's the thing that people. didn't make the pod last week that really, if you yeah. talk about this icky feeling like that, really, there's there's a, a couple of guys that had turned down like PhD programs or other things because of their Coinbase job offer that appear to have gotten completely screwed by the fact that the company couldn't just be fair to them. Yeah. And here's, here's what an employee said. I'm going to try and put myself in their shoes and channel the tone, but I'm, I'm definitely going to get it wrong, but I'm going to channel the tone. These cats really used all the saved money from our rescinded offers to buy an NBA finals ad that said crypto is dead. Good, good work. I think that's exactly how it was, um, how that quote went. <laughs> the most important part was these cats. I think like, I can't think of how else or it could have been these cats. It could have been like that, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it, sometimes you, you, you mentioned like not a good look, right? And it's because like, you can see the quote like this, when someone, when you break down logically, how someone must've been thinking, like you think about the leadership of the company. And if you go, okay, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then you start putting the logic together. I think you end with this quote. <laughs> like you end with some version of this. You go, I tried to give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. But these cats really use the save money from the rescinded offers to buy an NBA finals ad. Like, it, like there, there isn't a, and obviously that's not like the order of operations that happened here, right? Obviously for the company, but still. No, and I'm not here to like throw shade on them. I mean, crypto.com spent $700 million to buy naming rights for, to the Staples Center. And basically since that point, crypto's performance and crypto.com's performance have been as bad as you could ever imagine. Um, they're all cut up into crazy headwinds. When you have DeFi exchanges like Celsius, which we won't talk about in detail, not allowing people to withdraw their money, you have small crypto firms and coins effectively going bankrupt all day every day you know bitcoin is the blue chip here and bitcoin's down 70 percent. so if you're not bitcoin you're probably very likely to be down much more than 70 percent, and that makes it those are nearly impossible headwinds to swim against it coinbase probably already paid for the ad for the nba finals but it's just a bad look you know like i don't think they could have changed it but in three months if they're still spending money on stuff like that Oh my goodness. Not That's okay. Different. That's different. And it this feels like the crypto equivalent to me of the shoe shiner giving stock tips. You know, you know, like yeah. the story that may or may not be true of like Joe Kennedy back in 1929 gets his the shoe shine boy was like, you should buy RCA. I don't know. That's not how he. That's not how he sounded. <laughs> no, that, but, that was perfect. That's exactly. Yeah, how I'm just said, nailing. Yeah. I'm nailing them all today. Um, and that's when Joe Kennedy was like, 
I need to sell all my stock because this person, right, is giving, it kind of feels similar when you get like the crypto.com arena pops up. You get celebrities pumping crypto during the Super Bowl ad. You kind of, you're just like, what? Like there, there's this thing that no one has figured out if it actually makes sense from an investment perspective mm-hmm. is getting blown up in a uh, very public, like amateurish way. Like when I say amateurish, I mean like retail amateurish way. Yeah. So, so the, the most balanced piece that I just thought was incredibly well-researched, uh, I think just came out uh, last weekend. It's called The Crypto Party is Over in the Wall Street Journal. Brings together uh, facts from the 20 last articles they wrote and puts them all in one place. So I'll put that on the Twitter. It's a good balanced read about some of the mania relating to celebrities um, endorsing it. Some of the craziness that was happening with uh, crypto founders and their mansions and their the parties they were throwing and now how um, that's pulled back. Before I give you the reins back on the fishbowl, can we just talk yeah. Michael Saylor? Oh, please. So it, listen, it, it was out there based on something his CFO said that they could get a margin call when Bitcoin dropped below 21,000, which was fairly common in the last week. I haven't seen any reporting and I've looked for it that explains if that margin call actually happened. Um, So I'm so curious. Have you seen anything? I've seen Michael Saylor say that it hasn't happened and won't happen. Oh, interesting. So that, well, no, so that I've seen something else where he says it has to go as low as 3000 to get a margin call. Is this true? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know about the margin call. Okay. I don't know about the margin call, but that squawk box interview. Yes. With him. That is straight from the sailor's mouth. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's really funny. It's really, really funny. Yeah. So can we talk? specifically about that oh this makes me just cringe so this is this is before you i'm gonna let you go in here this but this is everything that's against against the way that investors should think and i don't even believe that it's the way michael saylor thinks before you hop in why why would you say it if it's if it's not what you think i he's a performer so i actually can't find my notes on this but he talked specifically about how they did back testing. <laughs> Sorry, I can't get through it with a straight face. <laughs> they did back testing and Bitcoin was just the best performing asset they could find. Well, Bitcoin is something that from 2009 to 2020, when he's doing this back testing, went from less than a dollar to like $50,000. <laughs> of course, it's the best performing asset in your back test. You really think that's a comprehensive? You know what else happened from 2009? to 2020 nothing but a bull market with zero interest rates i i mean are you serious right now you took 12 years 11 years of nothing but a bull market on a incredibly speculative asset and said oh well that means i can invest in it safely for the rest of my life and i'm gonna take out i'm gonna hold six billion dollars worth of it at its peak valuation i've currently lost more than a billion dollars or sorry, yeah, more than a billion dollars of my funds here, which are largely financed with debt. Like, this is the worst case. I don't care if it works out. I don't care if he rides off into the sunset and has, he's going to have more money than me. That's perfectly fine. It's just 
really poor investing, if you can even call it that. It's dangerous, like straight up. I mean, he th- this this kind of rhetoric out there in the world is so dangerous for people when they're looking to understand markets and get even high level investing advice from people. Like, cause he said, he said what, what you just mentioned, right? Best performing asset over any time frame, it has outperformed. Yeah. Over any time frame. And then what did he, what are the time frame examples he gave? Two years, four years, four years <laughs> eight years. That's not any time frame. Like that's a very specific time frame. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, thing's, the thing hasn't been around for 50 years. Exactly. So <laughs> no, no one has ever lost money investing in Bitcoin over four years. When something's been around for 13 years, you get a low number of four year periods. Like it, it's not a, it, it's, it just, it's so dangerous. So he also was like, well, basically saying it's a great time to invest. This is a guy, this is a guy that's down at least a billion dollars. And going, oh, this makes perfect sense. You know why? You know his valuation methodology? It was a four-year simple moving average. So he said, oh, I went below the trend line. Well, an asset that goes up for 13 years, of course, is going to be above the trend line until it's not. And then <laughs> it, it's anybody's guess, especially when you don't have a cash backstop and there's no fundamentals. Like, I understand the uh, value and the positive take here. And I'm not, I don't think Bitcoin's going to zero. I think it's going to be around for a very long time. I think there's a use case there. But I have no clue of the valuation. I'm certainly not taking out debt to speculate here. I, so frustrating. We've had the conversations around uh, how do you value Bitcoin? Can you value Bitcoin? Right. And, what I'm kind of starting to think about here is that Bitcoin becomes possible to value at the point that the world is destroyed. Keep going. That's a bit of a, that might be a little hyperbole, but when Bitcoin as a store of value, let's, let's relate it to gold. I'm just going off the cuff here. So bear with me. Yeah. Bitcoin, if you view it as a store of value, gold is a store of value. Gold becomes is a store of value historically because so much currency was pegged to gold, right? It was tied to the value of gold. And so therefore it was like a like you knew that governments needed gold. And so if if all else falls apart, you'll have gold. Right. So even if markets start to fall apart, you'll have gold. So that's like historically. Gold has been seen as a store of value, some version of that. Bitcoin is when the government no longer, like the government currency is no longer really a thing. So you kind of, you get like, it's like when, when nation states fall, yeah. you still have Bitcoin, which that's what I'm talking about, the destruction of the world, not like nuclear disaster, you know, yeah. cause you still need servers. Like if, if servers go down, well, you don't have Bitcoin. So you still need servers, but it's like if nation states fall, we're kind of far from that probably. Oh, but so I listened to Bill Miller on William Green's podcast this week, right? Bill Miller is the only so-called value investor, and I'm sure there's a, a few other that has a substantial holding in Bitcoin. And his take is simply that if you're American or Japanese or somewhere in the European Union, you've probably had very stable governments and you can trust their guardianship of 
your currency. And so you go, why would I need this? But if you're from Argentina or Venezuela, you understand the power of having some other assets. It could be gold in your example, or it could be something that's hopefully a little easier to transact than gold, which Bitcoin would fit the bill of, of something else because you can't trust your government. And I think I, I still think that makes sense. Um, but that's I'm not going to tell you versus value. That's a uh, different. But if you have utility, you have supply demand. And if you have demand, then there is some value when there's a fixed amount of coins. Now, I'm just not going to tell you if <laughs> it's dancing over there. I'm not, I don't know if it's five bucks or 50,000 bucks or a million bucks per coin. I mean, I just don't know. But I do think there's some value there. And that's the maybe maybe I shouldn't say more than this because I'm going to get into Nerdville reels quick if I'm not already there. But I agree with you. But the you. Utility in that circumstance, to me, becomes most valuable when the, the utility is more ubiquitous. And that utility in this world becomes ubiquitous when I said nation states fall, but I really mean yeah. when the reserve currency, like there is no reserve currency of the world, right? Uh, and like, so that is what would have to happen for what is true in, as you mentioned, Venezuela, Argentina, you know, Afghanistan yep. a little bit ago becomes the norm. So you, like, you have to believe that reserve currencies are going to fall. Now, I said, we're not close to that. Who knows, right? Like, you, you never really know um, when reserve currencies could fall. But uh, anyway, I, we, we'd have to go. Let's get back to our regularly scheduled program. I took us off into a, uh, into a nerd abyss. Uh, good luck to the employees of MicroStrategy. I hope your founder doesn't destroy your livelihood. Um, and best of luck to everyone. We're not rooting for anyone to fail over here. So, hey, Bitcoin could go to the moon. It doesn't uh, harm me in any way. Go for it. Can we talk two things? Can we talk about Stanley Drunkenmiller and his article with uh, John Collison? Oh, the interview? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So we're bad at this because we're both investing nerds. If you don't know who Stanley Drunkenmiller is, here's my blurb. Over more than four decades in investing, Drunkenmiller has never recorded a down year. His fund even notched a return of a plus 11% in 2018. And during one stretch, he compounded his assets at 30% plus per year for 30 straight years. His net worth is north of $5 billion. This is from The Hustle. This is uh, from 2021. So... Pretty smart dude, huh, Diggles? Do you think we should listen to what he has to say? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a way, like a wide range of different environments. You said 40 years. I think 45 years is how long he's been a chief investment officer. You've seen some things. You've been through many oh, environments. Yeah. Yep. And he, he has background kind of like me. He, he started in banking. So, of course, I like him. Now, this interview yeah i said article but i meant interview it's a youtube video you can go to at collison and uh pull it up it is from june 10th so wide ranging like just if you have an hour and you're interested in investing just listen to it because john collison who's the founder of stripe is just ask really insightful questions there's two things that i found really interesting the first is something that drunken miller always talks about Actually, there's three. The first is that if he was making a prediction and he's wise to say, I'm not making a prediction, prediction, predictions are dumb. He would say, 
the pain is going to continue and we're going down significantly more than we are down today. Um, I think you mentioned as much as 50% more. So thoughts on that, Douglas? I do have a thought on that. And, but one of my thoughts has to do with something else he said related to that. And I don't yeah. want to steal your thunder. Yeah. So no, go for um, it. Well, so one, it's interesting because I love that you brought up the fact that he said, this is not a prediction, but if I were to say what I think, because it relates to the fact that while he believes that as the case, he also said that he's not shorting equities right now, at least not in a material yeah. way. And what, what he said was that he would wait for a 15 to 20% rally potentially, or he didn't say it. He said, I'm going to see if there's like a 15 to 20% rally. And then that's when I might get interested again. And I, I thought that that was really interesting. So that was my, my perfect. No, you actually, you're, you're helping me articulate this. So the actual quotes relating to this is there won't be a soft landing and a high probability that the bear continues down. He, he thinks, and this is almost proven by current valuation methods that the mean reversion will continue. And those are my words, not his. When they talk specifically about inflation, he dropped a factoid that I've never heard that is incredibly interested. He said, when inflation gets over 5% in the US, um, it's never gotten under control until short term, basically the Fed fund rate goes above CPI, which means the Fed fund rate has significant movement because CPI is currently eight to nine percent the fed fund rate was just raised this week but what is it Dougals? it's in the one and a half percent range. Yeah, something like that so like and, and the those, cpi being inflation yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- those two things need to converge so not only does cpi have to come down significantly but likely the fed funds rate has to go up significantly the ramifications of that are significant because all debt gets significantly more expensive that probably ground uh that probably creates an environment where we hit a recession very soon um, simply because you can't raise the Fed funds rate that quickly without severe ramifications. We'll talk about maybe later in the show uh, what's happening in the U.S. housing and mortgage market and why there's significant impact to that through the rest of the economy. And what's interesting to me here, one of there's so there's like everything is interesting, honestly, to me in here. The one thing I'd bring up is that there's so much, we've talked about this, I think probably mostly off pod, but we've talked about the fact that there's so much that relies upon earnings over the next few quarters right now. Like I, I think that that's what, that's one of the, the key factors, one that drives the market over time. So what I'm about to say is not like rocket science, but as of right now, I think so much hinges on that because in one world, you could say that prices have dropped enough to make it so that the price, if you just look at this one valuation measure, the price to earnings ratio has gotten like reasonable, like reasonable-ish. It's not wild anymore, right? That's like one way you could look at it. However, that's forward-looking. However, if you say that, which this often happens in circumstances like this, the forward-looking earnings predictions are wrong yeah, and earnings come in, come in lower, then we could be just as overvalued as we were 20% ago. Yep. Right. And, and so they're watching earnings is going to be pretty critical to see what happens over the next two or three earning cycles. Do they hit 
as they have been, do they hit expectations? Do they fall below expectations? And what is the outlook also of the companies at that point when they announce earnings? There's so much that relies upon that. But I, I, I love this part of the conversation that he had with Carlson. You don't seem to like what I just said, though. You don't seem to like it. Well, I mean, I, I think you just know I hate projections. And like, I think that's a, a fair take. I don't I want to say I disagree with it. But you said if you look at this one metric, well, when you look at 10 metrics, price to earnings is the only one that looks reasonable-ish. Everything else still looks like we're in a crazy bubble. So I just would look broader than one metric. I also agree with looking broader than one metric, but I don't think I've seen enough that says that everything else looks like we're in a crazy bubble. Okay. I'll, I'll uh, yeah, we'll, let's, let's change some yeah, text. Yeah. We'll we talk will. about it we next will. week. Okay. If we go back to Drunken Miller, there's two other things you said that are just good. Collison talks about, hey, you know what? I've heard your performance is really just that you outwork everybody, that you work crazy hard. And he says, you know what? That's true. But I think passion equals hard work. And I'm really passionate about investing. So that's what I want to do when I wake up on a Saturday morning. And that's what I want to do on a Sunday night. And like, um, I just think that gets overlooked. That's not an investing point at all. But people, if you find something you're passionate about and can do it where it doesn't feel like work, you're going to enjoy your job more. It's a huge life hack if we're I mean, if we're calling it that, I, I just, it's worth calling out. Yeah, agreed. And in the, in the investment world, I mean, part of what he was saying is it takes so much effort and scrutiny and rigor to do what he's done, right? That, that's where like the time investment is material. You're reading through all this stuff and uh, injecting it into your brain and trying to figure out what the heck it means. Like it just takes a heck of a lot of time because he's not, he's not looking at something on a whim and just saying, oh yeah, let's just see, let's throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what happens. He makes big bets, right? That are very well researched. Um, but I got to jump in there. One thing yeah. he said, which is so fascinating, he has a whole team of analysts working for him. Yep. And he said, it's so crazy competitive right now that he, sometimes he gets pitched something and he was already maybe bullish on that industry or that stock. And it's like a lunch meeting. He goes back to his desk throws hundreds of millions of dollars into this thing. Now his portfolio is massive. So hundreds of millions of dollars is a lot of money, but not like it would be for your average person. And uh, then goes back to the analyst and says, I took a position. I want you to, to do more rigor. And he'll decide if he either continues to add to that position or jumps out two or three weeks later. But he said, it's so competitive that sometimes he sees other people uh, realize that story within the next two to three weeks. And that's the biggest move of the stock. What's funny about that selfishly is, listen, I'm not comparing myself to Stanley Drunken Miller, but I found myself doing that a little more in terms of, oh, I think this is, I think this is actually, there's actually something here. I might jump in with a small position and continue to formally dive into the 10K and do those other things. And then usually you can jump out if you were wrong without much of a loss, but if you jump in, you might get that big gain early. I definitely yeah. see that. Yeah. I think it's interesting. And it's a taking this without a lot of nuance in it for the average investor is dangerous. Oh yeah. To, to be honest. But, but I agree with you because it's a, but that, like there are the cases where I might see something and say this price over the long term I know, isn't bad. Like I know that, 
I don't know that it's the right price. I don't know this is yeah. exactly the right time, but it's not bad over the long term. Like I'm my long term, right in there. So, but I, I agree. So, like, take a little bit. It probably usually for me, it won't be my full allocation. Like, I'll have more than I'm willing to allocate to whatever that thing is. But yeah, I agree. I thought this part was fascinating too. I took a note down there of like trading before the research, and then there's like deep, deep research that happens to either um, mm-hmm. get to two or three weeks later, like whether he exits the position then, yep. which he says is not much of a loss usually, or doubles down or, or continues to ride it. So, but that was really fascinating. One other thing I thought was, yeah. oh, sorry. One other thing well, I thought no, was interesting. To hammer on that point, like you made a great thing. I always say this with Buffett, Drunken Miller's basically the same. Like the, this is kind of like listening to Michael Jordan tell you how to dunk from a free throw line. And being like, okay, I'm going to go do that. No, these guys are like the best to ever do it, right? So just because they ha- say something, it can be intellectually fascinating. It's probably almost never a good idea for your typical retail investor. So sorry to hammer that point home. You, I agree with you. Great point. One other thing I love that he said is when you're cold, the last thing you want to do is make big bets to get back to even. Even for Michael Jordan. The Michael Jordan, one of the Michael Jordans of uh, Michael Jordan would never say that though. Michael Jordan would be like, I'm not cold. I've never been cold, so I wouldn't know. Um, But that goes to your Tim Ferriss thing from a couple of weeks back where you're going, hey, if you lose money, think about trying to make it back in a different way than you lost it. And think about trying to make it back with a different time frame, you know, a much longer time frame than just being like, oh, I was at the blackjack table. I lost it. I'm going back to the blackjack table. Uh, to make it back because you're this is not going to happen precisely this is a phenomenal interview wide-ranging conversation hits on multi-decades of views thoroughly recommend it it'll be on uh, our Substack on monday uh, if you want to join our Substack, skippydougals.substacks.com and also you mentioned putting it on the twitter at skippy doogles love it thanks doogles all right, there's there's other things to talk about, but I think we better dive over to the listener mails and make sure we do that justice. Well, I mean, if we want to do it justice, let's start off with the listener mail jingle. Then we hop in. Here's that jingle. They fight and fight Okay. You want to talk debt first or do you want to talk bear markets well let's let's talk debt we um got listener mail specifically asking about my thinking as it relates to debt because on the pod i'll often say you know that's a high debt company so probably not a fit for me or probably not a fit for the value investor uh methodology i'm going to talk about that a little doogles i want you to jump in with questions and then Gosh, I could talk about this for hours and hours. We'll try and keep it to a few minutes or less. So if you're fishing in the cheap stuff, right? If you're looking at at things that are fundamentally cheap, I'm talking equities that are trading near book value in some cases, or PEs less than 10, or price to free cash flows less than seven. Like Historically, you make money buying those cheap stocks. But it's not a guarantee. Sometimes investments like that are priced that way for a reason, right? They're not, they're, they're fundamentally priced that way. I, I would say they're always priced that way for a reason. They're usually unsexy businesses, businesses that are out of favor, 
or businesses that are struggling, maybe they're in the industry that are changing. I mean, Kohl's is a holding of mine right now, largely acquisition play, but Kohl's is super, super cheap. Well, why is Kohl's super cheap? Because when's the last time, Dougals, that you were like, oh, I can't wait to go shop at Kohl's? Like, no one says that unless you're a 65-year-old grandma, right? Kohl's is that price-to-cash throw of three, if I remember correctly. Like, it's super cheap. So those are the stocks that I typically buy. How you get absolutely screwed when you buy stocks like that is if you buy companies that are actually going to go out of business. The way companies actually go out of business when they're super cheap is they have revenues that are falling off. They're probably not making much money and they have lots of debt. So I have this extreme aversion to companies with debt in large part because you have to if you're a value investor. So I'm just going to talk through two metrics that I look at that give me a lot of peace of mind, help me sleep through the night that know this company is not going bankrupt anytime soon. And then I think mean reversion is on my side if they're at 52-week lows with super cheap fundamentals. And I know there's no chance of them going out of debt. So the first is simply um, debt to equity ratio, right? So equity is assets minus liabilities, right? And in the simplest sense, you can think of equity as retained earnings, right? If my business makes 100K a year and I pay me 50K, I still have 50K in the bank. That is the equity in my business. And effectively, that's cash that I can do what I want with. So if I have 50K in equity and I have, I don't know, 5K, 10K in debt, that business is on solid financial footing, right? I'll I'll pause and just make sure I'm articulating this clearly. Yeah, that all that all makes sense. Okay, if if it's the reverse of that, let's say I have fifty thousand in retained earnings, which I'm calling equity in this case, and maybe I have five hundred thousand in debt. First of all, who's the bank that gave me that debt? Because they're idiotic. But second of all, how how have I proven that I'm going to cover that debt burden? Now, so now, Dougals, you, now, you're, now you're not buying the stock and you're shorting the bank. Is it, is it, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Now, Dougals, in the in the growth startup world, I mean, it's a totally different equation for you. So the example I gave is is pretty extreme. And I'm not saying you would be buying that stock, but in some cases, early stage companies that are all about growth, and we just talked about the eight companies that lost $15 billion in the Derek Thompson article, like those companies probably didn't have great debt to equity ratios. I don't know, because I didn't invest in any of that nonsense, (laughs) but other people did. And so it's just where I play that makes things like debt to equity ratios so important. The other one that all almost always look at is the current ratio, which is just current assets over current liabilities. Typically, current means uh, the next financial year. Uh, so just call it next 12 months. And if you have a bunch more short-term assets that you could effectively convert to cash at any time you need, then you do current liabilities, you're not going out of business anytime soon, right? So those things, my focus on debt simply helps me sleep at night and knows that the business that I'm buying is on really solid footing. And that pairs well with knowing that the business that I'm buying is also dirt cheap. And that changes the equation for me where it's like, this is effectively a no-lose proposition if you have the right mindset and the appropriate time frame. Very well said. I think you articulated that really well. And we do have different views. I am also generally debt averse, but it depends on the company. 
this uh, the listener mail was asking specifically about yours. So I'll just spend 30 seconds just discussing because you yep. mentioned it is different. Um, I do think about because the companies I'll invest in, I'm looking for multiples of returns. And so I'll look at how are you funding your growth? Are you funding that through earnings? That's best, right? Yep. Are you are you funding that through equity? That's pretty expensive. And a lot of times, mm-hmm. like putting out more shares that dilutes my ownership, are you funding it through debt? And in some cases, you, if you're a capital intensive business, especially, you might be funding it through debt. But what are the terms of the debt that you have? Uh, is that long term, low interest rates? And so there's a lot of nuance that ends up coming there. But for me, I also don't like to see low cash balances and high debt unless you've proven, which this is hard, but unless you've proven that your cash management historically has been really solid. And generally speaking, these types of companies don't have enough history of specifically of like cash management for you to be able to know, but it's a different view. Yeah. Well, the other thing I'll mention, and this could get way deep in the rabbit hole is you can change your capital structure by bringing on a bunch of debt in a way that makes your return on equity and other metrics that people look at return on assets artificially inflated with what almost what I'd call financial engineering, where you're like, well, look at this return on equity. It's 50%. Well, that's just because you have so much debt on your balance sheet that your capital structure is really debt heavy. And, and so the stocks I invest in don't have those crazy return on equity figures typically, but they also almost never have much debt. So it, it just all ties together in a way that you can paint a picture that looks really rosy and not have a sustainable business model too much debt. And a, uh, a phrase that I've often enjoyed over the last like 20 years is you can be profitable, but bankrupt. Yeah. And that go. comes down to the importance of cash flow management, which is where one of the places the debt comes into play. Yep. There we go. Very well said. All right. I get a little bit giddy over the question that Jared asked. Jared, thank you for the listener mail. I uh, said some, uh, added a few points to the housing conversation that we had. And the question that was asked here is, is there any research info theory out there that suggests that because having better technology allows quote unquote normal investors slash consumers greater access to information that both bear markets and bull markets are more contracted or shorter? Great question. I got feels. I got feels around this and I ranted on the bear market side. I ranted about this about seven months ago and I believe you just didn't care. I'm just giving you what's your reaction. Sounds uh, like so, me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to start off with the, the bull side actually, because it's because this one's shorter. It's hard to say that bull markets are, are shorter now because we just had the longest bull market um, <laughs> that we've had like that. So it's just difficult. Like, um, to, to talk about that one. Although I do think the question is still interesting. The bear market side, the answer is yes, there are theories. Um, I've seen them and I'll, I'm gonna give my two cents on what those theories are. I'd love your reaction. And then I'll give my own view, which is a little yeah. bit different. What I've seen out there kind of comes down to two points, but the answer is typically I've seen that there's, there's a good amount out there that says, yeah, we think bear markets are shorter. And it's one because central banks these days are propping up markets more so than they they have historically. And two, th- what part of what you said there, Jared, around information being out there, more retail investors being involved, which increases um, like information volatility, right? What do you want to call it? efficiency? Let's just kind of call it. I've seen versions of that, 
that are out there that say that they're that bear markets are becoming shorter. I have a different view, but that's some of what I've seen out there. What's your reaction to that, Skippy? It's all so complex. What's the uh, what's the blank blank adaptive systems jargon that everyone throws around? Complex adaptive systems, right? So like there are so many factors that go into the price of an individual stock. Then there are 500-ish individual stocks that make up an index. Then there are uh, interest rates, which make each of those stocks more or less expensive. Then there is human behavior and the attention span, which I think has changed for the shorter. So I think it's really hard to make a conclusion because of how complex and how adaptive this system is. Is that a cop-out answer? Yes. <laughs> but but it's a, it's, a, it's a real answer. <laughs> But uh, I agree. I agree with what you said. I'm just giving you a hard time. Here's my here's my view. I think that when it comes to our bear markets getting shorter, my my real answer is no. At least that we don't have enough evidence that says that. But I actually think that the reason I say the real answer is no is because I think that the definition of bear market is faulty. And this is the thing that you said that you didn't care about a few months I ago. I still don't care about this yeah. seven months later. Yeah, here I go. But I'm back. Someone asked about it. So I'm back. So in December, in December, we had uh, we had an episode called like a bear in a China shop. And in that episode, I went on this rant, which Skippy just ended saying, I don't care. That was about the definition of a bear market uh, being wrong. Right. And the reason I believe this is because of the definition of a bear market is from the top to the bottom, at least 20 percent down. And typically someone's looking at the S&P 500 when you say like the market isn't a bear market, but you could do it for any index. You could look at the NASDAQ, you can look at Dow. But so from the peak to wherever you are, right, there's at least a 20 percent decrease in price. That's typical. I think that that definition creates a lot of noise is basically what it is. And so you end up having these bear markets and bear markets happen pretty frequently within that definition. So if you just take the S&P 500 and go back to 1950, so let's say 72 years of data, we've had 16 bear markets according to that technical definition during that time. So let's say every four to five years, you end up having a bear market, right? And most of those, it's like a few months that ends up lasting, right? I think on average, if you take them all, it's something, it's over a year, but that's because of the long ones. And that's what I think is important. And so to me, I, I don't know what you want to call these things. I think the reason you say you don't care is because like, it's just a bunch of words we're throwing around, like who really cares? But I think it's important because oftentimes when the term bear market's thrown out, it conjures this image of like a full-fledged crash. Like that's the image that like we're in a bear market. And so it's like doom, gloom, fear, uncertainty, doubt, like all this stuff comes about. But oftentimes it's just like there is uncertainty. And investors don't like uncertainty, so they pull their money out and just wait a little bit. And then that uncertainty is over, and so they come back in. And so you'll see, like, we have, we're in a bear market now. We had a, a bear market in 2020. There was a bear market in 2018, right? Like, and for 2018, 2020, like, once folks saw a light on the other side, you jump back in. And that's not as important to me as are we at the start of a multi-year drop, which that's a little bit different. I'll pause now because I know you want to jump yeah. in. Now you're you're um it's better the second time around, Dougals. Here's we already have the Dougals indicator, right? Here's what we're gonna do. I don't know what, what we're gonna call it yet, but there is something brilliant here, and you gotta uh, trademark this as soon as possible to say it's not only about how far down it went, but the slope of that 
uh, pullback. And so each bear market should be classified like we classify tornadoes on the Dougal scale. And then we have something to talk about. I want this to happen. I like where this is going. I like where this is going. I think that that's exactly right. That when you, when you, because when you have just a certain number of terms, correction minus 10%, bear market minus 20%, right? When you have a limited number of terms, you have to lump a bunch of stuff into it. You don't have the stratification that we have with like hurricanes, tornadoes, et cetera. Yeah. And, and when you start to stratify to say, you know, from 1929 to 1934, that effectively negative slope is much more painful because it's over five years than the 2021, which you hate ever got classified as a bear market. Like it, that, I know that bothers you. Yeah. That keeps oh, you up it, at night. It, right? my toes. So uh, you let's let's do this. We're going to break some bread over this and uh, we're going to pull out some napkins and and make the Dougal. So we're going to have the Dougal's indicator and the Dougal's scale for bear markets. It's going to work. <laughs> it's 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 going <laughs> to. It's, it's going to. Um, but yeah, I, I'd like that. And to get to throw some numbers out there too, Jared, like if you, if you look at the last like 50 ish years, the bigger quote unquote crashes, whatever you want to call them that we've had, there was the one that happened in 1973. Um, it took about six years to get back to break even. You had uh, 1987 that took like two or three years, I think, to get back to break even. You had 2000 that took four years, I think, to get back to break even. You had uh, 2007 that took four or five years to get back to break even. That's pretty recent. And so yeah. you're looking over 50 years. The big dips have all taken like a good amount of time. It's just that um, I think maybe I'll even throw this out. With more information now, more retail investors are cognizant of when a bear market happens. Like the So we have, they happen pretty frequently, more people know that they happen. So it probably feels like they happen more frequently than they used to, and therefore feel shorter because you hear about it more and then see a recovery. And because we've been in this long bull market, you've seen a number of bear markets during that bull, three or four, like during that bull market, and it's always recovered. And so it probably just feels like um, bear markets are recovering faster. But my answer is that they, they aren't, or we don't have enough evidence to say that they are yet. I think that's fair. I go, I take this question in a slightly different direction. When he, when Jared talks about um, more information being available, easier ability to trade stocks, I think of behavioral economics professors, Richard Thaler and Cass Solenstein, who do great work all over the place. They just came out with a revised version of Nudge, which if you haven't read it, you should. And they did a study, or maybe they just brought a study to my attention. Maybe someone else led it where... They talked to people about, I think it was specifically talk straight, stock trading, and they did like three things. They'd give them two pieces of information and ask them what they'd pick. And then they gave them like five pieces of information and ask them what they pick. And they gave them 10 pieces of information. And generally, the stocks that people picked were remained the same, regardless of how much information they had. What changed is their conviction in the pick. So they had when they had like 10 pieces of information and they bought Exxon and Exxon went down 50%, they weren't selling the thing because they were like, no, look at all these metrics I have. Like I have so much confidence because I got more information. And so I think there's something at play here where you just go Google and you get thousands of articles that confirm whatever bias you have. And you can, you can go to, 
Robinhood and Morningstar and E-Trade, and then you can go to Seeking Alpha and you can go to whatever else. And I think potentially that could make the downswings quicker uh, because there's more overconfidence. Yeah, you, you do also have to think about the fact that retail investors are a small percentage, relatively yeah. small percentage of, of all investors. It's still, it's more material now than it has been for a while, right? I think we're like around 20%, 15-20% of the market is made up of retail investors. It's something like that. And so retail investors can't fully, like if, if you take 20% for a second of retail investors, if every institution, this is an impossible scenario, but if every institutional investor was like, the things are going up and to the right, and all retail investors said it's all going to fail, then you'd only just hit a bear market, <laughs> right? Like you could yeah. only lose like 20% of the market. So you need, I know, it's like, I'm, I'm just doing it to, to uh, make a point. Like yeah. you actually need both institutional and retail to create a significant uh, downward downward spiral to happen. It can't just be one of them. And so you could say increased information generally, not just for retail. Totally. And then let's just be clear about the fact that the so-called pros deal with the same yes. psychological challenges that your retail investors do. Yeah. They're yeah. definitely not immune. Great questions. These are great questions. Love it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Hope we did it justice. If not, hit us up and uh, we'll go into more t- detail anytime you like. All right. We closed out. Yeah. Um, you know where to find us. One stop shop, skippydoogles.com, Twitter, Substack, skippydoogles at Gmail for listener mail. Thanks again for that. And uh, we'll see you shortly. Thank you. Thank you.